Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, a voyage of discovery for curious foodies everywhere. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be your pilot for this adventure along with our navigator and food fact finder James Winter. Hello! And on today's show, we are taking a trip inside the amazing world of tea with our special guest, the rare tea lady, who is an award-winning global expert on the hot brown stuff, who's going to be debunking some of our history about tea and revealing amazing facts about what we all should be trying to drink. Plus, we'll once again be trying to cook the impossible and find out what woolly mammoth might have tasted like. So without further ado, grab your cups and saucers and stick your little finger out for a journey to the centre of food. Hello, James. How are hey, you, sir? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. After that, I've got, I've, got a, I've got my mug of, not hot tea now, it's a bit cold, ready for this one. <laughs> In preparation, I've yeah. got a mug of tea. Yeah. As well, well, mine's actually in a mug that says coffee on it, just to confuse everything. You know. <laughs> um. I did have a lovely. I did have a lovely. Um, I went to a fancy hotel on uh, Friday and I had a lovely um, teacup and saucer, and it was a little bit smaller than a teacup and saucer normally is. So I don't know. It just felt very pleasurable in the hand. Where it That's was exactly so what thick. I imagine you do when we're not together. Jay. <laughs> Circulate through the, uh, the, the foyers of grand hotels of London, drinking tea in a, in a china cup. Yeah, it's only the foyers as well. It's normally never beyond the foyers. Well, once they spot you, surely they just <laughs> get you out onto the street as quickly as possible. <laughs> Round, <laughs> roundly throw me back out. Uh, now, uh, a few weeks ago, we met up with the uh, wonderful food archaeologist, or just general archaeologist, but knows a lot about food, Edward Simons. And we were just in passing talking about eating woolly mammoths, yes. uh, as you do. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to find out what it might actually taste like, which I'm sure you've been worrying you all, all this time as well, James. Well, yeah, and I'm wondering how, how on earth are you going to find this out? I'm intrigued now. <laughs> Go. <laughs> so, woolly mammoths, 35,000 years ago. Turns out, in the Arctic, they are so well-preserved uh, that some of them are found with blood still in their veins, so the meat is still pink, which is good wow. and bad, I think. There's, there's stories of one being found which uh, had still grass in its mouth. So you do wonder how it died. It was still eating. Midway through eating, just keeled over and got frozen. Perhaps that's how it goes, yeah, for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Maybe a podcast in the distant future of tens of thousands of years from now. Probably we've <laughs> lost going... a couple of listeners already with this intro. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, there have been a number of expeditions over the years who have claimed to have eaten woolly mammoth. There seems to be a bit of a, a bit of the rage of sort of the 20th century of trying these things out. Uh, quite a few have been debunked. In 1951, they alleged to have eaten it, and then they uh, did DNA testing. It turns out they ate turtle, which was a oh, little bit, little bit quite, quite an unusual mistake to make. Yeah. <laughs> so, what would it have tasted like? Right, mm. so first of all, fat. Uh, and the fat is a problem with your old woolly mammoths. So there's a type of fat called adipocra, uh, which I'm probably not pronouncing correctly, but that's known as um, corpse wax, which sounds delightful to begin mm. with. That can be found in humans and mammoths, and it's basically when the fat turns to a kind of soapy mixture, um, which they say smells rancid and has the texture of cottage cheese. Lovely. So, not a, so this yeah. is a good start. <laughs> It's a good start. So that's the that's the lovely marbling that you're going to have. And so I guess so, what, so what we're what we're talking about we're talking about the taste of thirty thousand year old mammoth, not freshly slaughtered. No, you know, preserved right. in ice, cut right. out of ice from the deep freeze. Okay, what would it have tasted like? Yeah, it's a good point. Maybe that's another one. What would it have tasted like at the time? Having um, having having gone through the uh, the very old tinned fish saga not so oh. long ago. <laughs> Aging certain products doesn't make them taste nice. <laughs> we, we can categorically <laughs> confirm that after having gone through that. Um, so go on. Also, so, so, so this is, well, this so is the, your first that's the textural element. It's like cottage, rancid cottage cheese with a waxy rancid texture. Rancid cottage cheese. Yep. And the second aspect is the meat, which is also an issue. So obviously the ice crystals form within it in the ice and all the moisture. And they basically start to pierce all the flesh uh, and break it down. So much like if you leave you know, meat in the freezer at home too long, but then do that for 35,000 years. So what happens is the meat looks solid when you cut it out of the Arctic tundra, if that's what it's called, uh, but then when you defrost it, it basically turns into rancid goo. Oh. Um, so right. I think, <laughs> yes, to, to confirm. So where we arrived at was basically mammoth would taste like a sort of rancid fatty smoothie. Mm. Which is not with cottage cheese. But there's no. Top. Has anyone t t actually tried this then with any of these mammoths? Has anyone of 
No. Well, they say they have, but I don't think anyone actually yeah. ever really has. Not to live um, to tell the tale anyway. No. I mean, can you imagine? No. I mean, it's... Well, it's well. Uh, Yes, so there we are. That's a <laughs> so if that's anyone that, is actually that's that chapter closed. <laughs> well, and truly closed. <laughs> hey, after that, here James here comes on the link. We could all do with a cup of tea. Yes, we could to wash <laughs> that could. mammoth down. <laughs> wash that mammoth down. Let's meet our guest host today, and not a moment too soon after that section. Please uh, bring some auditors. <laughs> <laughs> Henrietta Lovell is known around the world as the Rare Tea Lady. She's the founder and CEO of the award-winning global brand, the Rare Tea Company. And she has an encyclopedic knowledge of tea gained firsthand by travelling the world and meeting growers and suppliers. And because of that, she's collaborated with many of the world's top chefs and created bespoke blends for Claridge's, Nomo, Mugaritz, Bennu, and many more. And we are very happy and honoured to have the rare tea lady with us today, Henrietta. Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food. Let's talk about something delicious. I think that's a yes. definite move in the right Please. direction. <laughs> it's remarkable you're still here having listened to that mammoth bit. I thought you... <laughs> no, it's an honour. Thanks so much for having me. I've listened to many of your podcasts and they're hilarious and informative and rather wonderful. So I'm very honoured to be here. Tell us, first of all, the name, the Rare Tea Lady, sounds wonderful and something you'd sort of find in the books of some Victorian kind of science fiction uh, story. So the name Rare Tea Lady, explain to us where that comes from and what that means. Well, when I started um, my company back in 2004, such a long time ago, um, I didn't know what to call myself. And I mean, tea expert, tea something or other, you're setting yourself up for a fall because I wasn't really that expert all those years ago. I was learning and as I went along. And um, there's an idea, I mean, for the younger viewer, the viewer sorry, listener, it might um, might be something you don't get, but there was such a thing as a tea lady who went round offices um, with a mm. with a trolley, with of a wonky course. wheel, um, yeah. with her hair in a in a, perhaps in rollers underneath a scarf and a yes tea stained tabard apron, <laughs> putting very over stewed tea on people's desks um, in a very jolly way. And I thought it was quite funny to call myself a tea lady because it was a different kind of tea lady than I was. Um, putting forward and sort of mocking myself a little bit in the way along the way and now it's just who I am I'm the I'm the tea lady you're the tea lady because I've forgotten I've never been in an office where there was a tea lady but that image that thing in mind of the sort of battered teapot it's very carry on yeah, film isn't it? sort yeah. of battered teapot going round well it's almost like an urn as well I, I, I'm sure yeah. we had like an urn on the trolley and you would you know don't let anyone ever put you off an urn. An urn is an amazing thing. That's how tea was made before tea bags. So tea bags only really hit Britain in the 1970s. Um, there's, there's a stat I've read, and I can't remember where, but in 1968, only 3% of people in Britain used a tea bag. So, of course, there was... Uh, when was that? 1978, did you say? 68, 1968. It's 1968. Yeah, only 3%. So they invented in America around the turn of the 20th century. And they just didn't take on here. There was so weird American things that you know, no one really wanted. And it wasn't really until we got into sort of future food where we wanted, you know, dehydrated potatoes like astronauts and mm. you know, bread that was pre-sliced in a plastic bag. And we've given up those things, but we've held on to the, uh, the, the single serve. Not very sustainable. I mean, think how many trees. Mm. It was kind of a decline in, of, of a teapot in a way. I mean, tea bags and teapots... They never work that well together. I mean, you know, we all do it, obviously, but there's something inherently, they work against each other. And I think that was, as a kid, I remember my parents always had a bit of tea paraphernalia, which I never understood because by that point, as you said, there were tea bags, but we would sometimes put the tea bags in the teapot and you would, you'd end up with a, just a terrible, exactly, that thing. What would you, tea strainer. A, a tea sieve? Tea, tea strainer. strainer. I mean, they're hard they're to holding find. Up there. I'm holding up a tea strainer because they're kind of esoteric. It's like you've rummaged in my mum's cutlery drawer. There was always well, one in there. So just imagine this, teapots have been around for many thousands of years, millennia. And they can be, they can last for centuries, they can last for lifetimes, they can be passed down, they're things of beauty and pleasure that will flood your life with pleasure. Or you could have a single use uh, piece of paper or plastic that you will will only use once and throw away and you'll have and then people say oh well it's awfully difficult to use a teapot because i've got uh, i've got tea leaves and i'm 
imagine if you said, oh, it's awfully difficult to have potatoes because, you know, I'm going to have to wash the mud off. You know, I can't use, I'd rather mm. have, <laughs> you know, like you have, a, you have a strainer in your sink to catch the things when you wash the dishes. Well, I can't wash the mm-hmm. dishes because I might get some, you know, bits of food in the, in the sink. You, know, you, you can have a strainer, which catches the leaves very nicely. But also, please let's consider in this moment in time where we're talking about climate crisis, why do we need to chop down trees for single use? And when we think about it for yourself, when you think about wood and you think about converting wood into paper, that doesn't happen by magic. You need industrial chemicals and those industrial chemicals have to go somewhere. And they might go into you and they might go into your food supply and your water supply and it's just not necessary. And then you could say, oh, well, I'd really like to have a tea bag so i've got one that's biodegradable but it's still using precious resources like corn and again corn doesn't turn into silken plastic by by magic you need all those industrial chemicals and so on and so forth and nanoplastics and blues and bleaches so i think we can just abandon the tea bag here and now now i know what you're thinking all this talk of drinking is making me thirsty i really fancy a glass of wine yes whatever time it is it's always wine o'clock you could have a glass of wine to go alongside your pot of tea and how would it be if you could have a free bottle of wine or three well one of our sponsors is here to give you that exact gift we'd like to introduce you to our favorite new wine club wine 52 it's a monthly wine discovery club and they're so sure that you're going to love their wines you can grab your first case completely free all you need to do is go to www.wine52 so that's w-i-n-e and the numbers 52.com forward slash journey and cover the postage costs of just over five pounds and you'll get three bottles delivered right to your door and i had those three bottles delivered right to my door and they were amazing and they come with this fantastic book which is basically sort of like a uh, a magazine all about wine which explains to you where the bottles have come from and they have some really interesting articles in it um so if you have a fascination or an interest or even just the idea that you'd like to learn a little bit more about wine much like we're learning about tea right now then this is the perfect wine club for you because instead of stocking thousands of wines from hundreds of producers wine 52 takes all the hard work out of it for you and selects only the very best of the best their expert wine tasters search out the most exciting wine regions and the top undiscovered winemakers in the world and bring them straight to your door so how does it work well each month they send their members three wines which you then can customize to your taste by choosing from a case of white red or a mixture so get involved www.wine52.com forward slash journey to claim your free case today right let's get back to another cup of tea shall we what do you call the little basket that you can sort of sit into your teacup infuser that's a I have one of those now. That's changed my world completely. And, and you know, it's such a simple device. And, and I just cannot believe I, I have, I'd never used one before because now the world of tea is open to me. Before it was Tetley or, or Yorkshire. Take us, take us back to the, 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 back into the history of tea a little bit because I, I, we all have a sort of image in our head of what it is and how it all came around. But I'm curious how much of that is true how much of our memory of it is apocryphal just take us back to to where we our relationship began with tea all the tea in the world came from china all the tea that's where it comes from and we imported it as we as i think people know in in tea clippers we were you know sailing around the world trying to find the best tea and we didn't always have a very good relationship with china which i don't know if we need to go into now but we wanted the tea they didn't want any of our stuff we wanted to trade with them. You know, this was the industrial revolution sort of happening and we wanted to give them our, our stuff that we were making. And they just said, mm, the emperor said, I'm not really interested in your stuff. It's not very good. Our stuff is better. Uh, so we thought, let's find a thing that they might get uh, addicted to and want in exchange that we can black market trade because the only thing the emperor would take was gold. Gold, oh, that wow. was it. Good. Not very many gold was High standards. I know. So... The, all the tea was being exchanged for gold. This was sending a lot of gold over to China, nothing coming back apart from tea, which we were consuming. Wow. 
So they thought, mm, let's try and find another thing, and uh, opium was hit upon. <laughs> there was no opium in China until we started importing it in black market exchange for tea. I mean, they say we, I said the British East India Company, sanctioned by the British government. Remarkable. Not, uh, not a glorious time in our history. They exchanged, we, we traded <laughs> drugs for tea. I mean, well, that tells you how. Opium wasn't, yeah. wasn't, was it illegal back then? It was just a, was a thing. No, no, exactly. It was, just, it was banned by the emperor. He said, like, I don't really want this in. And we were like, mm. We're going to ignore you. Okay. And then when he said no, he sent gunboats up the Yangtze. That's what gunboat diplomacy comes from. And we thought, oh, you know, let's take, we're, we're, we, you really are going to trade with us. You can't ban us. And, and we'll penalise you for trying to stop us by taking Hong Kong. Oh, wow. blimey. So T has played this <laughs> political role in the formation of a modern Yeah, world. it really has. Wow. And we basically sent in a botanist um, <laughs> called Robert Fortune. He was sponsored by the East India Company to steal the tea oh, yeah. from China because it was it was illegal to take anything oh, out but to finish the tea. So like a kind of so James Bond of botany was sent in. I'm imagining yeah. on, a, on a dark night up the river on a boat with just a pair of little scissors to go and take <laughs> yeah, something. Well, he, he, he disguised himself as a Chinese nobleman with a fake queue and everything, with a little plat, and he bribed um, people to find his way in. This was, you know, pain of death. He would have been executed if he'd been caught. And but he was making his fortune, Robert Fortune, making his fortune. Yeah. Uh, and he managed to smuggle the tea plants out inside bamboo canes. And, and he, he got them out, and we began to establish a, a tea um um, sorry, I've lost the word. Plantation. God, isn't it annoying when that happens? Um, a tea business. Oh. I, I have to use the word plantation, actually, because don't you find it's a bit... Um, colonial. Colonial. And, well, yeah. I guess this but is where we're going, are we? Are we heading towards the colonies yeah. with it? Yeah, yeah, he did. He started... Uh, we, we ended up growing tea. British ended up growing tea in India. So is that how tea ended English. up in India? So before that point, yeah. there was no naturally occurring tea in India? Well, they didn't think there was. They researched, couldn't find that, no, but think of it, it's the other side of the Himalayas, right? Um, and so while they were looking for places to plant this ill-gotten stolen tea, they discovered that there was a plant that was quite similar in a region called Assam. And they're like, this looks quite similar. And they found that there is actually a second varietal of tea called uh, Camellia sinensis samica, because before that they only had Camellia sinensis sinensis from China. It's the same plant, just a slightly different varietal. How many different plants of tea are there? I'm curious to know. I mean, is it Ooh, just two? Just two, and then you can hybridize. So it's like uh, there's there's Camellia sinensis sinensis and Camellia, Camellia sinensis samica, the Chinese and the Indian type, but they have been hybridized like grapevines. So you could or roses. You can make thousands of different teas, tea varietals, and the most important thing though, you grow it. So we know this about wine. When you take a, um, a Riesling grape and you grow it in New Zealand, it tastes different than when you grow it in Austria. But also, it tastes different from field to field within Austria or within New Zealand because the pH of the soil will be slightly different, the length of the time the sun stays on that field, how much shade there is, what the cloud patterns are, um, and, the, and the gradient. All kinds of things dictate the taste of a tiny little patch of land that grows things on. It could be grapes, it could be tea, it could be uh, tomatoes. Much so, like wine, then, is it is that level of whatever's feeding into it from the atmosphere to the ground to the place and space, ooh. and the uh, it all changes. And and are these dramatic differences to the tea? Can it change it? Dramatic. Everything you know about wine, in terms of terroir, and is true of tea. But more than that, everything you know about wine, it all comes from grapes. All tea comes from Camellia sinensis. So if you grow something from, if you make an alcohol from from apples, it's cider, it's no longer wine. So if you make an infusion from something that's not Camellia sinensis, it's no longer tea. It would be a herbal infusion. So chamomile is not tea. Right. And mint is not tea. Although in English we do call it tea. So that's one confusion that gets in. But how you process it is going to be what makes the different kinds of teas. So... You can make white wine, orange wine, red wine, champagne, sherry from the same grape, essentially the same plant, right? Depends when you pick it, how you process it, how you craft it to make the different kinds. The same is true of tea. White tea, green tea, black tea, oolong tea. They're all made from the same plant, just processed differently, crafted in different ways to bring out different flavour in the leaf. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? How is it that you're having to use the metaphor of wine a lot here? And this is weird because... <laughs> You know, we traded gold and got a whole country addicted to opium and then started wars and nicked whole, whole states. 
because of tea. And we're clearly obsessed with it as a nation, and we have been for many years. Yet, we seem, from these things you've just told me then, I knew none of that. And yeah, I understand how champagne is made and different wines. What happened from the days that we were James Bond stealing tea plants from China to today when all of us drink it and have Lex to no knowledge about what it is? War. Uh, war was the problem. We had two world wars, which broke down international trade, made trading very difficult. Um, China had a revolution, which made trading very difficult. Um, international trade got really broken down by the Second World War, though, and we were a nation absolutely obsessed by tea. And we're a tiny island, and there were U-boat submarines trying to stop things coming in. Now, the British government knew we couldn't get through a war without tea, so they made it uh, a government supply. So food, fuel, and tea became rationed and, and government issue. <laughs> so instead of being able to go to the grocer and buy tea, you were now given a little ration book and told you could have some government tea. Mm. And then you didn't get a choice. You, couldn't, you used to be able to go. So this is super interesting. Before the Second World War, people in Britain spent more of their income as a percentage on tea and alcohol. Wow. Mind-blowing, yeah. isn't it? Well, think, I mean, compare that to your life today, and that's crazy. <laughs> amount. And that's suggesting, is that suggesting they were buying a lot or the teas they were buying were good and people were really into it? They were buying, they were buying depending on quality and value. So just as you would go, let's go back to wine again, seeing as we're there, you go to the off-license, you see the wine, you're saying, okay, well, my mother-in-law's coming, I'm going to buy the shit one today. <laughs> and, but, but my best friend James is coming over tomorrow, so I'm going to buy that really beautiful wine that he really loves. And yes, it's a little bit too expensive, but it's a special occasion. Or I've got a party, I'm going to get a whole load of champagne. You know, you bought what, your tea, depending on who you were trying to, you know, whether for pleasure and relative to its value. And you went to the grocers and you bought it that way. Mm, that sounds wonderful. And so, so you people were spending. You can still buy tea for thousands of pounds a kilo. And of course, they would be buying it anything. in loose leaf, right? By the by, the pound or yeah. kilo, whatever, whatever quantity you're talking. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have a, I have a bill from 1712, uh, from June 1712, where three pounds in weight of black boya tea, that's black tea from the Wuyishan region of China, cost four pounds and eleven shillings. Is that a lot of money? In, 17, in 1712. That sounds like an awful lot to me. Probably quite. Yeah, that's three pounds in weight. <laughs> What would the, uh, I know I don't want to leap too far in the future, but I'm curious today, if I wanted to go and buy a pound of tea, how much could I spend on a pound of tea? And what would it be? An awful, awful lot. Thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds. If you went into the Wuyishan, which is a, um, and now a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and there's a, it's a protected forest, there's areas where um, the original Lapsang Sushong comes from, um, and Dahong Power kind of Oolong, where you, where it is really, very very highly sought after only a small production and extremely expensive so think of the most expensive champagne you can think of and then and then quadruple from that so wow. things like lapsam i can't say it, lapsang souchong and, and darjeeling and are these are these regions where the tea plant this tea plant is grown or is it part of the no, process we, that they go through to create the the, the tea we're gonna we could we could be here all day you're asking me such interesting questions and i can rattle on and on i'm sorry your questions are so good um so darjeeling is an area yeah. um like champagne so the teas of darjeeling can only come from certain amount of a certain geographical space in india in the foothills of the himalayas oh. and and it's and very much like champagne if you're a foot outside of that designated area you can't call it darjeeling although it may be better <laughs> so I actually buy tea from an area called Sikkim, which is a little bit away from Darjeeling, um, a little bit higher. And it's the estate, the whole state in India has been organic for about 20 years. Again, a bit like wine buying, isn't it? You're looking for those little yeah, pockets yeah. just close to Burgundy, but have a lot of a similar terroir characteristics. That's where the, where the value is, right? Yes, okay, I understand that. Cool. And also create, trying to create value for communities, because unfortunately, well, we're going off into another subject here, forgive me, but... In tea, um, as in alcohol, there is craft and value that comes in. And we understood that in Britain before the Second World War. And I should get back to that. Now, however, we are used to commodity prices. So that's the war. So the government is buying contracts for tea. They, can't, they haven't got any money. There's a war going on. They go to the people, uh, their partners, India, East Africa, Sri Lanka, and they say, look, we need this tea. Here's a contract. 
40. I don't care how it tastes. I'm not going to sip it. Just this, this much for this much money. It's a commodity transaction. And it's ration. The, the customer, the consumer doesn't get a choice. They, get, they go to the grocer. They're given like soldier's tea. It's black, cheap tea. And they might be at first like, mm, yeah, they're not quite, quite sure nice. about that because the war on, still have a lip, no problem. And, and it was also a, a nice democ- uh, egalitarian period. Everybody had the same thing. So it didn't matter if you were the Duchess of Devonshire or her, her gardener drinking the same tea. So people put up with it. And lots of good things came out of the Second World War. You know, things like, um, you know, universal education, healthcare, unemployment benefit. That egalitarian spirit was very important. However, we kept on buying tea like that. Tea was rationed into the 50s. We became very used to drinking tea, uh, industrial tea, as a ration, no choice. And we sort of lost the connection with farms and with quality and with value and seeking it out. Also, remember, it was very hard to get tea from places like China where the revolution going on and the cultural revolution also affecting tea production. Mm. So that double whammy, we're just used to drinking. And so we forgot. Uh, indu- Do you think we just lost our, our, yeah. our subtle taste for different and then, teas? And then the supermarket doesn't want you to go to the grocer. The supermarket wants you to come to the supermarket. So the supermarket uses essential products as a loss leader. You know, you make them cheap so that people, you may not make profit, but you get people in. So look what's happened to the milk industry. Yeah. Look what's happened to the tea industry. The pressure is on the, is on the producer to make it cheaper. And as some of my farmers I work with now will tell you, it's a race to the bottom because tea production in the UK now is and in North America, all of Europe and North America, is, the importation is controlled by about seven companies. And how do they do that? And so they buy, they basically act as a sort of log jam and say, right, we're going to buy everything. We're going to buy it cheap. But are they, how are they making such bulk? Are they going to anywhere they can get it and just wanging it all in this? Well, they just buy tea at, as commodity. So you go to auction, you buy tea, you make industrial, you buy, you make industrial tea bags. You're not buying it for quality or, for, you know, for incredible variety and differences. You know, you know, when you come to my tasting room, you see all these amazing cornucopia of flavor and we're sort of trying to reduce that all down to one tea English breakfast. Wow. And and we're going to make it very strong and you're going to put milk in it. So it's not really, it's kind of a one-dimensional flavor because you're going to dilute it with milk and pops sugar. So there's nothing wrong with that tea. It's just a very, it's a very small sliver of the tea mm. spectrum. And so these companies, they're, they're brokering it. They're buying it from auctions. They're brokering it into the other small tea companies. And we've lost a direct connection with the terroir, with the farm, with the vineyard, you might say, with the tea garden. And they've lost a the route to market. And that happened, you know, gradually from Second World War and, you know, until, until today, where it's no longer a value proposition for the farmer. It's a commodity proposition. So we've got further and further into poverty. So that now if you're working in East Africa or in India or Sri Lanka and a lot of the tea producing regions, your life expectancy could be as low as the 40s. This is... Which in Europe would be medieval. Yeah, this is... Cr- and also, if you look at us as modern consumers... You look at the, 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 the sort of effort and time we now put into choosing our beers, our wines, our coffees. I mean, you're, coffee. I mean, all the faff around that and all the endless. And you can't go anywhere now with someone not talking to you about the beans they've selected from somewhere, somewhere, somewhere. It, why is it the no. thing that's probably the most quintessentially British thing you could think of? We just go, I'll feed you tips and just chuck it in and don't care where it's coming from. Don't think about it. Not conscious at all. And here's the bit about the egalitarian going back. It's seen almost as a class betrayal to want fancy tea. You know, it's not for me. I'm happy with my ex tea bags. I've always had them. You know, they come from Yorkshire. You know, tea does not come from Yorkshire. <laughs> yes, it comes from India, that <laughs> and it doesn't come from that. Yorkshire has an amazing appreciation of tea, but it's not from yes. there. You know, you're not buying it from a man in a cloth cap. You're buying it from a person who lives in a marginalised community in India, East Africa, Sri Lanka, Thailand, uh, and those people are getting no value because there's no value in the in that very cheap mm. tea bag. You know, they could get it like wine from crafting and from flavor profiles and from adding value. And, you know, I, I buy tea like that. I buy it for how its value is, how it tastes, how rare it is, how much craft has gone into it, how expensive it is produced, just like wine. That's how I buy tea. That's the answer. But if we only buy it to be the cheapest one, and the big brands are competing on the supermarket shelf to always make it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. That's a race to the bottom. That's poverty. That's exploitation. And that's 
the betrayal, the class betrayal. It's our brothers and sisters in India and Africa, not some guy in a cloth cap in Yorkshire saying, you know, I, it's not mm. it's not for me, that fancy tea. Well, it's almost you the know, betrayal of that, you know, that egalitarian everyone's in together. It is, it is probably more strated because of that. So how do you, yeah. how do we actually find a way to to engage with this to drink to get to learn how to have it because even if you go to the you know we're talking about the supermarkets here in the supermarkets there's not that big range of stuff and interesting like you say the idea of having fancy teas is still seen as a bit posh Ooh, Ooh, a bit, a fancy tea. A bit posh. yeah yeah and also just getting a bit above yourself a bit up yourself it's a it's so silly isn't it and the the way forward is to let go of that kind of weird um prejudice because it is a prejudice and we do have a connection when you take a sip of tea you're connected to people in india and africa and places where they are living in poverty without proper education without health care you know with all the things that you need for your family so just i think being conscious of that is the beginning but also there is no hardship i'm asking for here they're not asking you to drink something with your fingers on your nose because oh, you're trying to do a good thing really good tea that costs a bit more tastes amazing it tastes beautiful you know you're going to go into this whole new world of pleasure and so the way is just to try you know it's to find and also remember i said there were these seven companies that broker all the tea and they said to all the little companies that's the status quo that's how it is that perpetuates the status quo with poverty built into it but if you have a tea company that buys direct it might be my tea company, it might be another. But what I want you to do is look for someone who's buying from a farmer. Mm. And then the value of the tea is going to the farm. It's very hard also to rip off somebody that you know and you've visited and you work with. You're probably going to be more supportive and understanding. But really that relationship, that responsible relationship is the key. And then you as a consumer, have a, as a tea drinker, have a relationship with that farm. You know where it comes from. You know that it's the value is going to the farmer rather than to uh, a multinational shareholders. We have a lot of chefs who listen to this. And I'm, cu- I'm wondering, with tea, can you do uh, almost flavour paired teas where you have teas that marry yeah. with certain dishes? How would you even, uh, how would you go about doing that? I mean, do you do that when you work with restaurants? Oh, did, did you honestly put that in so I could show off? Because now I'm going to sound like such a show off. Go for it. <laughs> Setting me up for a fall. It was like, I was starting to like her. <laughs> now she's really got a pickle up her bum. Um, I, uh, I do. I work with, you know, restaurants in like Noma in Copenhagen um, and many restaurants across the world where we'll look at doing a non-alcoholic pairing where teas will be part of that. And um, oftentimes it's very difficult to make them alimut, you know, hot tea in the moment in a restaurant. So we'll uh, cold extract them and serve them cold. So you get this incredible flavor profile from cold extracted teas. Wow. It takes some time. It takes, so the, um, all the amino acids and the flavors in tea um, will dissolve at different temperatures, but also over time. So you either, you've got variables to play with. When you want to make your leaf tea, your lovely tea, you've got this precious tea, you want to control three variables, your leaf to water ratio, how much tea and water you use, um, your temperature, because at higher temperatures, you'll extract more bitter compounds and at lower temperatures, you'll extract sweeter, more silky, more vegetal, you know, caramelly, the more ca- carbohydrates, they'll come out first. And then your infusion time, how long you extract it for. So if you want to have a very strong tasting tea, don't leave it for a long time. Put lots of tea in your pot <laughs> and, extract, and extract it quite quickly. It's the best, most interesting flavours will come out in the first 90 seconds. And then after that, you're extracting the bitter compounds that you would then need. You would need them if you're adding milk. You know, If you're adding milk to tea, you want the bitter compounds to balance the, uh, the creamy fat milk. And the temperature of the water is important, isn't it? I mean, you know, I mean, and now you know, you 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 get kettles and different ways of, and people use thermometers. I mean, I've, you go to a tea shop now, but often there's a thermometer and a timer involved, and it's you know, people are beginning to understand the complex chemistry, not in detail, but there is some complex chemistry going on in tea, which is opening up the world. It really isn't that much math. It's just that, you know, you could have a temperature control kettle that has 70, 80, 90, 100. And, you know, for green teas, do it at a lower temperature at 70 degrees. Or if you want to drink black tea, a really good black tea without milk, you don't need to put milk in it to make it palatable. Just drop the temperature down, say, 80 or 90 degrees. And you can do that also just by 
um, like managing your your nursery school and you're just adding a little hot water to cold water to change the temperature. You know, mm. it's you can you can titrate the temperature of the water by putting some cold water into the pot first and then adding some hot to reduce it down. So you don't need any fancy kit. I didn't think about that. That's a really good solution yeah. to it. Actually, you just and and as you're talking, I'm getting really excited about this idea of it's just experimenting a bit. And the things you've said now, you say yeah. them are obvious, of course. More tea to make it stronger. But also this idea, the first 90 seconds, I had no idea because you tend to get the idea the longer you, not, there's a point in the pot where it goes over too much, but there's a point where you want to yeah. leave it, you know, your granny would always put the tea cosy on and leave it out, don't touch it for five minutes. Well, you must let me talk about tea cosies and stuff, but I always wanted to mention this, the the great, all the really good stuff, all the amino acids and um, antioxidants and all the really amazing properties of tea they will take time to come out but you, the best way to, to drink them is in several infusions so with a tea bag it's only going to give one extraction it's ground up uh, industrial leaf and it's got high leaf to water ratio i'm sorry no it's got high surface area mm-hmm. to volume yeah. so it's going to give up its flavor very quickly and that's it it's a one hit wonder but with a leaf tea you've got a smaller um uh, surface area to volume and you've also got this beautifully crafted thing that has lots of flavor still in it it's not gone through the hurly-burly of industrial machinery it's been made to be amazing by rolling and crafting and heating and so this flavor will so you, you put it in hot water you extract it for say 90 seconds and then you take the water off you stop the cooking process you stop the extraction process and then you can put fresh water on again and you'll start a new process and you'll get deeper into the leaf and you'll get a second, even more delicious oh, wow. tea. But if you leave it in water, eventually, unfortunately, over time, all the bitter compounds will come out. So you've got to do several, you could do two, three, four delicious short extractions instead of one long one. And then you'll get all the flavor out of your tea and all the value. So that gets me to the tea cozy, right? Because tea was really expensive. Back in the day, people were spending a lot of their money in tea. So they would have a small teapot where they would put the tea leaf in and they would make sure the temperature was right. And then they would warm a second teapot, a bigger one. And they would rinse it out and they would make sure it was warm. And then they would make the first extraction, the first infusion of the tea leaves in the first teapot, a little teapot. Yeah. And then they would pour it into the warmed teapot because you don't want your tea getting cold. Then you make a second extraction, perfectly done and you pour it into your bigger teapot. You mix the first and the second, then possibly the third, depending on the tea you're using, maybe the fourth. And then you put it in the middle of the table with a tea cozy on to keep the pot warm and you have perfectly extracted tea. You've got all the value out of your leaf and it's going to taste amazing and you're not wasting anything. Oh, come on, let's get back to that. Uh, That sounds wonderful. We've forgotten so much though. You don't presume people had that. I mean, it's daft, but obviously people loved it back then. But just that level of nuance and natural sort of it was probably just instinctive they just knew what they were doing precious and you took care of it and it didn't matter if you were the lady of the house and said a duchess and devonshire let's go back to her her butler would have made it in the kitchen or housekeeper and then draw brought it up in the warm teapot to the drawing room and if you were a working class family you wouldn't have the luxury of drinking tea in the drawing room you would come home from work and your evening meal would be called tea, tea. tea. yeah oh and it would be drunk with tea which was made in the same manner that the Duchess of Devonshire, instead of being brought up to the drawing room, it's put in the middle of the table. And it was a centrepiece of it. Round. It was the big deal. That's why it was called tea, because it was the big part of the meal that you all look forward to. Yeah, mm. which brings us to afternoon tea, which is so hilarious now, because afternoon tea is a feast of tea, and yet the tea is the least interesting bit, usually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's about champagne and fancy cakes. Absolutely. <laughs> You're very, very, that's so true as you were talking now. I was thinking what a nonsense afternoon tea feels like when it's just sandwiches and cake and there's usually a very bog standard cup of tea. Of a side. Which does also bring us back to the pairing. So the reason why we have scones and clotted cream, or the, um, a, 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 a sweet and creamy thing, is because we started to drink teas from India um, when the British Empire had established tea gardens there and they weren't very good at making green tea they were better at making black tea it was a little easier especially with the varietals and transported better so we start drinking very patriotic Indian black teas but it's a lot more tannic need a different food to pair with it so instead of just having a piece of bread and butter or a cucumber sandwich it starts to need something sweet and creamy to pair with the tannins so you have you don't put milk and sugar in your tea you have it with something milky and creamy Hence the Victoria sponge, the scone and clotted cream. And so I do a lot of work now with people who do care about afternoon tea to pair the dishes 
with the teas to make sure it all works is a wonderful celebration of flavour. Let's make a fuss if it's terrible tea. Send say, it back. It's a tea flip. I'm, not, I'm not paying £100 or whatever it is or 50 quid for afternoon tea when the tea's no good. Very good And advice. we have to do that. And so Queen Victoria was a huge fan of, of this kind of tea you know, cake and sandwich. I mean, that's kind of... She's always what pops up in these stories about why things became very popular. Obviously, she was an icon and we didn't have the internet and the only person we probably ever heard about was Queen Victoria, but she certainly was a <laughs> champion of, of tea. Am I right? And I've always thought that, but sort of a tea, afternoon tea and cake and scone and things that you're describing, that's Victorian England, yeah? It starts to come... People definitely having afternoon tea and we're changing the food we eat with the tea as the tea changes because the first it was an English muffin so what we now think of as an American diner food was the first food that was called a tea muffin and it had a special chafing dish that it came in just very simple hot uh, like bread and butter first then a, a warm muffin nothing too strong in flavour because you don't want to overpower these elegant oolongs and green teas which we drank interestingly British people would drink more oolongs and green teas because that's what they drink in China and that's where we're importing it from than black teas, although black tea does also come from China, it just wasn't the predominant, How funny. and it's still not the flavour. I can't think of the, the yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't imagine sort of you know Victorian England drinking a lot of green tea. Yeah, you know. yeah, oolong. Yeah. I mean, really a lot. And um, forgive me again for I'm going to plug my book, uh, but I wrote I wrote this book called Infused Adventures in Tea. Um, and I was researching afternoon tea. I need to know the origins. What is the truth? Is it Catherine de Berganza? Is it, um, you know, Duchess of What's-Her-Name? Or is it Queen Victoria? And I, I looked at, I found a book reviewing tea, afternoon tea in London from the late 60s. And there wasn't a single, not a single serving of what we think of as this British afternoon tea tradition. It just didn't exist. You could go to Claridge's and have some eclairs and a slice of cake and a plate of sandwiches. You could go to the corner or the Ritz and they would all serve things in the corner of the dining room at tea, you know, in the afternoon, because people like to drink tea in the afternoon. Of course, it's gonna bridge that gap between lunch and dinner, but it wasn't a set meal. It wasn't this sandwiches, scones, cake. And it, it just doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't exist until the 70s. And it, it was the Ritz trying to put bums on seats <laughs> in the afternoon and create a new tradition. And they put the champagne in. There was no champagne before either. So, it, you know, it's so funny, isn't it? The thing that we think of is so archetypally British and it's gone on forever. It just, it's a kind of fabrication and invention. Although it is true that we have always had a tradition of taking tea in the afternoon and with something to eat. When were the, the tea shops? So this is after the war now, am I jumping to? So the sort of the Lions tea houses. They exist before. They exist before and they sort of dwindle away when we... With, with rationing, you know, with the tea is so no longer... So in those tea houses, problem. people were drinking oolongs and green teas and, I mean, it was a myriad of wonderful teas as opposed to just, a, a, like we'd imagine, a tea cafe today would be. It would have much more exciting offerings. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, it was a safe place for people to meet, especially for women. So it has a huge place in women's mm. suffrage because it was... It's interesting... Um, you had an amazing historian, um, the historic palaces, a food historian, Mark Melville. And I went to him when I was researching my book as well to find out more. And he explained to me the position of the different tea, uh, beverages. And they all come to, to Britain around the time of the um, Commonwealth, you know, um, Charles Crom uh, Cromwell. And coffee arrives, tea arrives, and chocolate arrives roughly at the same time, you know, within within a few decades of each other. But they all have different parts in society. So uh, chocolate coming from uh, Mexico is considered quite... Um, um, risque? Mm. Risque, yeah, because it came from people, with, they, people didn't have a high um, concept, didn't have a great understanding of Mexican culture and... They, you know, they were non-Christians and that was obviously very frowned upon at the time. People were quite dismissive of their culture. Um, obviously, we're definitely not today, but at the time they were and they thought it was very enlivening, uh, very sexualized. And it was considered something that was really just for, um, was an aphrodisiac. And the saucer was called a trembler because you're just <laughs> even holding the saucer for your tea, your chocolate. And it was really, it was often associated with prostitution and um, and. Coffee was considered was came was came from the Arabic countries and was considered that where they had a, a, a more respected culture because of um, mathematics and astronomy, and 
that was considered something to bridge the gap between um, aristocrats and trade because you have merchants and you have people who have wealth and as the industrial revolution happened they needed to meet for the first time and so coffee, uh, coffee was to stimulate the brain and you paid to get in you had to have a certain wealth you had to pay a penny to get into coffee house but it's where you would get to meet people who you could do business with and so it was considered quite trade um, but the really elegant thing because it comes from China which has silk and porcelain and exotic art and it's very much more developed in lots of ways than uh, Christian Europe was and was tea and so tea was this thing that you had to have accoutrement for you had to have these really beautiful teapots and teacups and that was all coming from China we didn't know how to make fine porcelain we stole that as well in China um, and so you're importing skill knowledge uh, beautiful pieces of art the teacup the teapot and and this very expensive uh, herb and it was considered something you know you had to have culture for and appreciation and understanding so it was it was something that um women were allowed not just prostitutes aristocrats the really high the the royals or whoever they could have whatever they mm. wanted the rules didn't apply to them yeah, and we have lots of records. So of them, they had chocolate we? and coffee, and yeah, and also it also worked on the other end. If you were if you were if you were very working class, the rules didn't apply, and you could have chocolate and coffee, whatever you could afford. It was just really the middle class who followed those rules. Like, you shouldn't be seen drinking coffee in public or chocolate, right. but you could be seen to drink tea. So, Henrietta, give me my what's my gateway drug into this world? What's what do I go mm. for now as a complete tea? numpty just eating drinking my pg tips in my english breakfast how do i f take my first step into this world so i don't get too off put by it but i can engage with this idea of just giving more more interest more more gratitude to my tea well, i think the first thing is if you really love tea you wouldn't put it in a bag you really wouldn't no one's put the baby in the corner you, know, you just couldn't <laughs> do it so don't buy it in a bag it's not sustainable it's not good and you really wouldn't do it so find some loose leaf tea and and, you know, the world is really opened up to us. We can become very conscious consumers because the internet exists and you can find, you know, and just find a company that's got a direct relationship with the tea garden and they're buying it for, for quality. And that's quite easy to find. And there are actually, um, you know, a lot now in Britain. When I started in 2004, there was zero. Everyone said I was completely insane. I'd never be able to sell leaf tea <laughs> and no one would care, but they do. And, and then just try something, I mean, try something that, you already like so if you like green tea buy green tea but if you really don't and you've only had a really horrible industrial one and it turns you off maybe don't start there stay start with an english breakfast that's made by someone who's blended it to be better than the sum of its parts to be delicious rather than someone who's blended it to meet a, a price range you know 3p a cup oh, so i can still go for english but english breakfast still a thing in loose leaf world yeah i mean it's the it's a hugely wonderful tradition and it's a means of blend of black teas so why not blend black teas up to make something delicious? You know, I, I have about five or six different blends that I make for different occasions. You know, like I have a tea called Speedy Breakfast that is really strong, hits the nail on the head. You could put milk in it, but it will, if you drank it beside a industrial tea bag, it would be like drinking tea in 3D. You know, one is just going to be flat and bland, mostly taste of bag. Also, empty the bag and drink the bag on its own. And then we're like, oh, I'm not going to do that. Again. <laughs> <laughs> it's horrible. And there's nothing really wrong with industrial tea. It just doesn't have a lot of flavor. So when you have something that's being crafted, you know, for flavor, you obviously taste the difference. And then from there, that we, there are single estate teas and there's, um, you know, beautiful English breakfasts that can be blended from, from one farm, you know, taking different harvests from a farm, like an, a, cu a cuvee of a, of, a, of a wine. And then there are, you know, taking some that are blended with high Himalayan. You might do it at home. You might say, I love the florality of the high Himalayan teas. I've just gone into them. I just started to buy my first um, tea from Sikkim. I heard Henry talking about it, or from Nepal. The really high Himalayan teas have incredible floral notes, and they're super light and silky, and they taste a little bit like dark chocolate. And, but I also like the maltiness of an Assamica or an East African tea. I love that, you know, like, um, like a malty beer, like a, a London Pride, those kind of flavours. So I'm going to put those two together. And that's what we used to do. You know, an English breakfast was, the name English breakfast was coined by Americans to describe what English people drank for breakfast. And we blended our tea. <laughs> wow. 
fascinating. And, and, and what about in terms of, so if Jay's now going to go off and buy some tea from your wonderful website, no doubt, um, <laughs> yeah. do, what else does he need? If, if there's other people out there thinking, this sounds amazing. I mean, mm. we've talked about infusers, strainers. Is there a, a basic kit of parts you should you should do? You should have. Yeah, like, so back in the day, a teapot had a plate behind the spout to stop this tea leaves coming out. Some of them were quite fine. Some of them were, were less fine. But that's an original teapot. So if you go to a Oxfam shop somewhere in your neighbourhood, there'll be probably be an old teapot kicking around, or there's probably one in the back of your cupboard or your mum's house or wherever. And there'll be you just need a teapot. And if you don't like having any little bits of leaf in your tea, you think, oh, that's a little bit scary, then you need a tea strainer. If you don't have a tea strainer, fine mesh, you can use a sieve or you know whatever. It's not that they're not they're, they, you can get them really cheap and really easy. It's just a little sieve. And but if you you can buy a teapot that has a nut that the the plate behind the spout is fine enough that you won't even need a tea strainer. So you just need one thing. And if you only have like when I'm traveling, if I only have a cup and another cup, I'll just wait till the uh, tea has settled in the bottom of the cup and then I'll pour. You know, I don't think they call it cowboy coffee. I make cowboy tea. That's, it's not that. That's fun. a really simple solution, actually. Just yeah. pouring it, pouring it like that. I was, I'm, I'm curious. I, I know you have to go and, and give a speech very shortly, so we're wrapping up soon. But and I know James got a couple more things to ask you. But my last thing is, I'm really curious because you have travelled all around and you do know these areas and regions so well. Was there a particular time, a particular trip you went on where you found a a supplier or a place where you had to really work to get there. But when you got there, you found something really special. Did any of those strike you? I'm sure you've got lots of those experiences, but I'm curious about. Yeah, I think we're all very aware that tea comes from China and we're all very aware that tea comes from India. But we're not aware that most of the tea coming in our tea bag is not from, uh, it's not from China, of course. And it's a lot of it's coming from East Africa. And I had assumed that the tea from East Africa was quite low grade and was just bulking out the tea bag because it wasn't very good. I hadn't really understand that it was the trade and the exploitation of marginalized farmers in Africa that was reducing the value. And that's why all the tea bags are stuffed with it because they can get it cheap. And I've made that same assumption that it oh, just not that good. And I'm really ashamed to tell you that. And one time I was sitting at my office and there'd been an article about me in Time magazine and this farmer sitting on a, in a farm in, in East Africa in Malawi had read this article that I searched out rare teas, you know, small producers making beautiful things. And so he sent me a sample of his tea and it came in a, in a box um, which was made of a cardboard uh, cornflakes packet and it was covered in stamps. And I was like, oh my God, it's not going to be good. You know, <laughs> it wasn't very well. It wasn't in a fancy packet. You know, he, he just put it in a, you know, a box and send it off. And anyway, I opened it, I drank it, and I was, I was ecstatically happy and a little bit horrified. I was so ashamed of myself because I'd assumed that it would be bad. And I'd assumed, I'd just kind of written off a whole continent of tea with my stupid <laughs> prejudice. And, and, I, and this was amazing. And not only was it rich and deep and caramelly and, and fantastic, it had such body that I'd been looking for because I'd been drinking a lot of black Chinese teas and they don't have the body that you need to put milk in and so I rushed out and I bought some milk and I put the milk in and I was like wow this is like this is playing like a, a mermaid in the milk. this is amazing it turns into caramel you didn't need any sugar it's just extraordinary and then that's so why then I got on a plane pretty much as soon as I could and I went out to visit this farm and I saw this beautiful also I've had this idea that Africa was sort of dry and desiccated you know I'd grown up with you know live aid and um, I hadn't realised that, you know, you, you can drop a seed in East Africa and it will grow. It's green yeah. and lush and beautiful. And the problem with for them with tea and producing really high quality tea is not supply, it's demand. You know, they can make the most amazing tea possible and, you know, we can afford to pay for it a few pence more a cup. I mean, that's really what we're talking. Instead of it costing 3p a bag, it might cost 9p a, a pot. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Oh, really? I mean, I, I know that we're through, going through difficult times. Yeah, but compared to what we pay know. for our coffee, you know, which we're, we're, yeah. precisely there is no limit. To that. You think about high street coffee when you're going to a train station, you buy a coffee, and you're thinking, oh, but could I? And then the most expensive teas we have will cost like a pound fifty a cup. Yeah. When you've worked it, when you're a pot, mm. like really, 
we can we can do it and even if it's not every day even if it's just once a week on sunday morning please start trying and experimenting and you know do yourself a favor do the world a favor do the do the tea farmers in the world a favor and we could actually we could and we will make the world a little tiny bit better i mean it's something we really can do all of us in this world where you know it feels like it's all out of control and we have no part to play there are these little things that we can do that make a huge difference Oh, I mean, it sounds a wonderful world, and I, I heartily encourage everyone to. Just one, to, just where, where do people find your website? Where where can people buy tea from you or from other people who are available? But I suggest everyone goes to Henrietta's website. I agree. Oh, thank you. Well, it's rareteacompany.com. Wonderful. And if you're in America, it, it was, I think it's rareteacompany.usa or something. I think we've actually got we actually is it, Americans are so into the tea now. We've set up a website in America. It's amazing, but um. It's there's a, there are a few. So remember, I started in two thousand and four. There are a few copycat companies mm. who have names very similar. So it's rareteacompany.com. And I won't oh. go into I won't go into the, the badness. And but I'm not going to sue them because I don't want to waste my time. Your book is Infused Adventures in Tea as well, right? So we can get that as a guidebook to take us along the journey as well. Yeah, I do. I do think you know one of the ways we can tell whether it's all mouth and no trousers if people really are engaged with tea farmers and they really are trying to do something is look at their social media. Is there is it, you know, the bullshit is kind of easily exposed at that point? So I do think you know, we do have a, a red tea company and red tea lady Instagram where you can see our world. Although I haven't been able to travel that much in the last two years, I think you can you can see um, that we have these relationships and we care about what we do. Mm. Lovely. I mean, I, all I was going to finish up with, I don't know if Henrietta's got time, she's got something far more important and serious to do, but I, I obviously, when I think of tea, I also think of the mystical art of tazeography, which is, of course, as people know, the art of reading the tea leaves, and, and, and this is part of the, the tea mysticism, isn't it? But, you know, not only does it make you feel good, it, it, it's good for your health and your nutrition with the antioxidant, but also it can read your future you know, yeah, you're not pushing that side of it enough the mystical power of tea is quite and so i just which is why you've got to get rid of another reason to ditch the bag is how you're going to absolutely know your this is the whole point <laughs> you know people are just wandering into their future with no knowledge whatsoever of what's coming whereas here here's a couple of different here's just 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 as i don't know see if you can guess there's some shapes that apparently should they be visible or in some way discernible from the whatever is left at the bottom of your teacup and turned out I'm looking right now. three times. Apparently you have to turn it out, turn it three times before you look at it. Or your saucer. There is a routine. I mean, Google it. I'm sure there's, you know, you could set out of it specifically. Onto your but, trembler. But it's not always, see, this is my thought. I always assumed this was always sort of good news. You don't want to get bad news in your but it's not. So I'm going to give you a couple of things that actually foretell badness, right, to see if you can guess what, <laughs> what's coming. Although it's all very vague. So anyway, here we go. Um, if you have a cat, the shape of a cat in your in your tea, what 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 would you think that might foretell something? It's not necessarily which, an event. None which, of this is a stranger. A, witch. A, a, a handsome stranger well, is going to come into your life. It's it's a, it's an indication of jealousy, and maybe you should Ooh. um you know should should look at yourself a bit more. Maybe I don't know what. Oh, what this is it. fun. I'm going to be then, doing this. This is really good. And so here's, a, here's another one. Um, Oh gosh! Well, okay. Here's one thing that you really don't want to see, and that's an airship. See if you can. I mean, an airship. A like a. Like I, I'm a, guessing. A, I have no other film with explosion. Your whole well, world is going to blow I, up. All it says here is great danger. I imagine if you see that in your tea, you just really just just run. What are you that's doing fun. here? That's just be around tea. Exactly. Just around. You like me to see that. Interpretation is everything, isn't it? Um, okay. Well, I'll leave you a good one. This is what you want to see, I guess. Um, is the shape of a bell, which foretells what do you think? A bell. A wedding. Happiness. It could, I suppose it could be a wedding. It just generally says joy in my book, but I guess a wedding could bring joy. But joy and happiness in your life is what I suppose you want to find at the bottom of your tea. And I guess if you drink these wonderful rare teas from, from Henrietta, your life will be full of joy, regardless of what the tea leaves say. Because it. it just sounds so delicious. And, you know, I'm... I'm I feel enlivened by it, and I just I'm and I'm I'm sorry, and I apologise that in my teacup today was a tea bag, mole of English breakfast tea, and it wasn't very nice. And I can testify that I do have better teas in the cupboard, but I didn't make that effort, and I will from now on. That's my pledge to the listeners yeah. of this podcast. Oh, I'm so not heartened by that. You know, it's it's really easy. Everybody's listened now; has given them up. They've all gone. They're like, yep. In the bin, no, not for me anymore. Well, I hope so. Oh, and, it is, and I suppose the message is you just need to take a bit more time. That's the, as in everything in life, time 
makes such a difference in the world of food and, and beverage in particular, but certainly in the world of tea, it's just a little bit more time. It's maybe a minute. Know. And you know, people say, well, I haven't got time in the morning. You say, well, do you have time for a shower? You could just have a wash. The reason you have a shower is that it feels really good. Yeah. And, and you've got time. Tea. I mean, you have got time. That's the truth of it. <laughs> Everything. A minute. Can, of course it is. And so I, I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners already do this anyway because they're so well educated and know more about it than we do, I guess. But, you know, it, it does make a difference. And there is a, a world of tea flavours to enjoy. I mean, Henrietta was talking about all sorts of caramels and floral notes and vegetable notes and all this stuff is just out there. It's like a as you were talking, I see a, a, a sweet shop full of jars. We talk about this metaphor quite a yeah. lot. And and it's up to the magical tea blender and maker to try and, you know, to help you find some of these things. And depending on what temperature you do, basically there's, there's guidance out there to help you find some of these flavours. But you can find your own way through it. You know, just play around and with it. And there's no right or wrong. Mm. It's how you like it. So now, once you know the three principles of, like, how long should I steep it for, how much tea should I put in the water and what temperature then it's up to you how you like it you can play around and experiment and no one's going to tell you it needs to be this many minutes or this temperature because you can decide for yourself henrietta that was a joy and absolutely fascinating and as james said incredibly empowering so i will be enjoying my new adventures in loose leaf tea so thank you ever so much for coming on and james that was wonderful let's all go and get a cup of tea absolutely absolutely